0: Let's open the precious Word of God to Isaiah chapter 36. We have 60 verses to cover today, and we'll not cover them in great depth. We have been covering them over recent months, because Isaiah has so much to say about Sennacherib, Hezekiah, the Assyrian Empire against Judah, and its terrible end on this particular campaign of Sennacherib. I would rather preach to you Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 or any verse of Colossians chapter 2, but it's all the Word of God. There is a difference. The New Testament is better. The Old Testament, the Apostle Paul had a number of things to say about it, that it was inferior to the New Testament. But there are lessons that we can learn in Isaiah 36 and 37 that can be to the profit of our souls and lives. we have covered 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And out of those 35 chapters, 15, either exclusively or significantly, referred to this event. Right, right. 15 places in the first 35 chapters. And now we have the history. Those 15 places were prophecies And the design of the book is to give you Isaiah's prophecies, primarily pertaining to Assyria, and the nations around him that would be affected by Assyria, then show the history. Then open up the second half of the book, starting at chapter 40, where the prophecies would be more about Cyrus the Persian, and Israel's deliverance from Babylon, extending all the way to the kingdom of Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three parts. There's chapters 1 through 35 that are prophecies, chapters 36 through 39, where we are right now, that is pure history. It's taken from Kings, 2 Kings 18 and 19, or 2 Kings 18 and 19 is taken from Isaiah 36 and 37. Right. And so we're gonna be dealing with history today. It's a little different than the prophecies. It's a little easier. It's a little simpler. And we need to figure out what we should be looking for. In expositing any chapter, there needs to be a strategy determined by God. And the strategy for us today in chapters 36 and 37 are to find the lessons for our lives from the historical account. We will glorify God. We will rejoice in fulfilled prophecy, Amen. but let's look for lessons as well. Amen. Chapter 36 is the blasphemous threat of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, through one of his leading captains, Rabshaki, against Hezekiah and the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're at Isaiah 36 and we will be coming back, so it's best to keep your finger there or one of your ribbons in your Bible. But I want to remind you of something about Isaiah 36 that the Bible tells us in the New Testament. And it's helpful and it's often used in our church because we want to understand the relationship of the Old and New Testaments. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, It tells us, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Isaiah 36 and 37 is given to teach us something. We should learn something from Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. And what we should learn is the patience, how to cheerfully endure negative events, and the comfort of God's deliverance so that we would have hope. Our lives should be filled with hope because no matter how bad the circumstances might be, no matter how difficult or complex the dilemma we face, God is able. God is able to resolve either very easily without you lifting a finger. He is able. And so we should learn how to cheerfully endure negative events and we should learn the comfort of God having done this before and that we should endure. In James chapter 5, Job is brought forth as the example and James writes and tells us that we should learn to endure things like Job did because look at what happened to Job in the end. Right. Look at what happened to Hezekiah in the end. <clears throat> He had two terrible events in the same year. Sennacherib comes to ruin his kingdom and to take him away and ruin Jerusalem and destroy the temple of God. And he had a terminal disease. It wasn't some doctor that said you might die in three years. It was the Lord saying, set your house in order, thou shalt surely die. He was delivered from both. And it's a great... He has great lessons for us, and we want to learn those lessons today, as Romans 15 tells us. We have been over the Assyrian Empire so many times, I do not need to repeat very much of that. The Assyrian Empire was powerful, it was very cruel, and that combination humbled nations from Afghanistan to Egypt. It dominated the Middle East. The Bible has a number of its kings mentioned, like Sargon and Tiglath-Pileser. And Sennacherib that we'll be looking at today. And then S.R. Haddon and, and other kings of the Assyrian Empire. Sennacherib was one of their most successful kings, though this expedition or military campaign did not end very well. Right. World history has little value unless one sees the God of history and his will among earth's nations. Amen. So, you were, so you choose to major in history and you learn what's happened. You know, big deal. You've learned what's happened. It happened. It doesn't have any bearing on today. It happened. But when you learn it in the light of God's word, right. then you know that it is His story of, his, of Him working out His will in the affairs of nations. Right. Then it becomes very interesting. Amen. That is my God lifting that nation up and putting that nation down. And we see it throughout history. We see it even in our own time. God's view of the world emphasized his church state. There was a nation that combined church and state, and its name was Israel. Israel was the state, and Israel was the church. Now they had Judah providing the rulers for the state, and they had the tribe of Levi providing the priests for the church but the Lord saw everything through the eyes of that little nation the smallest nation on earth is what Deuteronomy 7 says he viewed world history through Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8 it says that the boundaries of nations were set according to the nation of Israel right. in Amos, chapter 3, in verse 2, it says, The only of all the families of the earth have I known. God had an exclusive interest in Israel. Let's not duplicate dictionaries, encyclopedias, commentaries, and chronologies to distract our hearts as we look into these two chapters. We could waste hours, and it would be a waste, researching the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, Rabshaki, and S.R. Haddon. What God wants us to know is right here. Or He would have told us, go take a look in the book of Jasher. (laughs) Or go take a look in your Bible dictionaries. But He didn't do any of that. What He wants us to know about those things is right here. We can find lessons for our lives. Intellectual curiosity, scholastic inquiry, is not faith. Neither of those are faith but they rather undermine true faith. True faith, God said it, that settles it. Amen. I like God said it, I believe it. That settles it for me. You can say it either way, depending on how you're looking at that statement. Let's exalt the efficiency and emphasis of scripture to build our faith in God and our love for God and his jealousy. Amen. Fulfilled prophecy glorifies God. Amen no other book in the world has fulfilled prophecies like the bible the bible has hundreds of them with prophecies given decades or centuries that's hundreds of years in advance or thousands of years in advance no other book has it like the bible and the bible has hundreds of them and god delights in fulfilled prophecies as soon as we get to through these historical chapters and get into the 40s of isaiah do you remember The 40s of Isaiah are going to be God exalting His ability to declare events beforehand from ancient time, the things that are not yet done, that they would come to pass. He knows the end from the beginning, and He determines it all. And there's no God like our God. The Quran has no prophecies in it, because Muhammad wasn't a prophet, let alone the greatest of all prophets. He never prophesied anything. So how can you call a man a prophet that never prophesied anything? Give me Isaiah. He prophesied a few things. We've been working through them, chapter after chapter after chapter. Commentators attack the text, alter the text, quote their buddies, multiply possibilities, and miss the lessons. Let's see if we can grab some lessons today. We'll rejoice in fulfilled prophecy, laugh at the overthrow of Sennacherib, rejoice in what God did for Hezekiah, know how safe we are in Christ, and hunt diligently for life lessons. Let me just read a few to you. If I were to stop and explain, we wouldn't get through Isaiah 36 this morning, nor Isaiah 37 in the second service. So I'm going to read you a list of lessons. Trials can come, though you have set your heart right, like Hezekiah's revival, and like Job, like Jesus, and like Paul. Those are four of the greatest men in the Bible, yet God sent severe trials, and he did to Hezekiah. That is a lesson taught in these two chapters. That is why, in the preparatory email I sent to you yesterday, I started off with the verses from chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles, that there was a tremendous revival in Judah because of Hezekiah. Yet, just 14 years later, he has Sennacherib destroying all of his walled cities except for the city of Jerusalem. Job was a righteous man and perfect in the earth. But look at the trials God sent him. Trials aren't always punishment. Trials are purging our weaknesses, building our strength and our faith sometimes. That is just one of the lessons that we can get. Things can get worse, as in walled cities being taken and a broken covenant by Sennacherib, or like with Jacob or Israel in Egypt. When Moses arrived on the scene, did things get better in Egypt for Israel, or did things get worse? Oh, you guys have enough time to talk about going to Canaan? And you're sending this man in here to interrupt my day? Well, I want you to keep the same quota of bricks now, but we're not going to give you any straw. You can search the land of Egypt for it. That is going from bad to worse. In the Bible, Jacob is wrestling with the Lord for his life. He thinks it's for his life because Esau has said he'll kill him. And while he's wrestling with the Lord, the Lord touches his hip and puts his hip out of joint. Listen, those are the biggest muscles of your body. They're out of joint now. Mm -hmm. Things went from bad to worse. And Jacob had to limp the rest of his life. But he was happy limping because his limp meant that God had saved him from Esau. And so there's a lesson here that though you have set your heart, That 2020 is going to be a great year for you and your family some difficulties may probably will arrive to see how serious you are and so it was with Hezekiah Uh, that's number two I better hurry up God gets greater glory when he allows circumstances to degenerate and the case becomes hopeless God gets more glory the less capable you think you are in delivering yourself. There is a whole realm of principalities and powers for good and evil, but our princes always win. There, There are angels involved in everything throughout the Bible. And I thought about starting out this morning with angels, but it is hard to limit the subject of angels because they are throughout the Bible. The first use of angel is a singular in Genesis 16, and it's about an angel visiting Hagar. Hagar really had no right to God's religion, but there was God's angel taking care of her. Three chapters later, two angels arrive in Sodom, and they have an opinion about sodomy. Then in chapter 28, Jacob has a dream of angels ascending and descending on a ladder up into heaven. That means his life was going to be covered and protected by angels. Let's have those dreams tonight. No. All you have to do is read Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, that says those angels were made ministering spirits and are our servants, because we are the heirs of eternal life. We are the sons of God, and they are not. We are in the inner circle in heaven, and they are in the outer circle in heaven, but they are everywhere. When we get into Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has his eyes opened and he's able to see that there are evil angels involved in the kingdoms of Greece. That's Alexander the Great and his accomplishments were not by human device. And the kingdom of Persia had angel, had evil angels behind it. And so Michael, the prince of God's people went to fight against those angels and Israel survived And both of those nations, you can't find today. They are so pitifully inferior to the world-leading empires that they once were. The answer to Hezekiah in 2 uh, 2 Chronicles 32 is, when when Sennacherib, when Rabshakeh actually, brought up a great army against Jerusalem, the answer to Hezekiah was, There is more with us than with them. You remember that about the little servant boy up on the rooftop with Elisha in 2 Kings 6 who came to his master and said, Master, Master, look at that army. They have surrounded our city. Oh, Lord, open his eyes so that he knows there's more with us than with them. And the lad's eyes were opened to see the angels in the mountains. Do you see the angels in the mountains? Do you know the angels are with you? Do you know there are angels in this room? Do you know there are angels that encamp around about them that fear Him and delivers them? Do you know that angels are very comforting? They could strengthen Jesus when He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and they strengthened Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are everywhere. They were ascending and descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When you pray, if you pray fervently to God, Revelation 8, 3 and 4 tells us there is a special angel that takes incense from off the altar before God's throne and offers it up with your prayers. You remember Romans 8 that the Spirit prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered but I want to add to that that our God is a prayer-enhancing God and He has angels helping us. They're everywhere. Now why am I talking so much about angels? Do you know how we're going to end up at 1255 today? And an angel of the Lord smote 185,000 battle-hardened Assyrian soldiers in the camp of Assyria so that the remains of the army could be numbered by a child is what Isaiah tells us in chapter 10. That's why. That's a lesson to learn. It was a lesson I was taught as a young boy, and you have already heard it, so I am not going to repeat it. But I thank God for my mother comforting me at a young age about Psalm 34 and verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. If you will choose to fear God, there is an army protecting you so greater in numbers, let alone power, than any army on earth and one angel could take all the earth on easily in a minute. We're blessed. It's a lesson. It's a lesson. So you you read the news, and you find out that China has finally found enough money to build their second aircraft carrier. And you get nervous. Oh, now they've got two. And we've only got 12 super carriers and and 60 medium-sized carriers. What are we gonna do? Oh, what are we gonna do? You've got angels. There's more with us than with them. We shouldn't worry about those kind of things. What are you gonna do about it? Write somebody a letter over there? You gonna go try to blow it up? I remember as a lad doing too much of that, fear-mongering stuff and reading fear-mongers about what the Russians had. Listen, the Russian. Okay. Russia, Russia has one aircraft carrier. Do you know what it did this past week? Does anybody ever look at the news? I don't read these articles in depth. I don't have time or interest. But I read the headline. They have one aircraft carrier. It was in port, and it was on fire. If you were to, if you were to punch in, state of Russia's navy you would find out how terrible it is. It's all a rusted bucket of bolts. You just got to look. So don't worry. But that's not why we don't worry, because they have a bunch of rusty equipment for their Navy. We don't worry, because there's more on our side than their side, and one on our side is enough to take out 185,000 on their side. And so we thank the Lord. I need to go faster. That was number four. There are ways to pray that are more effective than other ways to pray, and Hezekiah demonstrates them. God will protect His own, and you can count on it. Who cares what other churches may do? Judah did not care what Israel did. Close peers may fall, but let us not compromise. Israel, the ten tribes, compromised, and Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, had already taken them and deported them and scattered them throughout Assyria. Who cares if those close to us compromise religiously? Those were the cousins of those in Judah. Those were the children of Abraham. But they compromised, but Judah wouldn't compromise. And Hezekiah wouldn't compromise. Let's not compromise. When you're in trouble, go to the house of the Lord in humility, and discomfort and fervency to get God's help. Reason with God for his jealousy and his glory because it's probably the most effective appeal that there is for prayer. It's not, Lord, pity me, please pity me, I'm scared. Hezekiah didn't say that. Hezekiah didn't say, Lord, save me because I'm scared. Hezekiah said, Lord, Thou art the God. There is no other God. He is blaspheming and reproaching thee. Would you like the whole world to know that you're the only God? Wipe him out. When you start talking like that, God gets a gleam in his eye and a smile on his face. And he comes in vengeance. He does. Now when you combine them together, then it's Psalm 18. I cried unto the Lord when I was in trouble. I cried unto the Lord when I was afraid. Then the earth shook. And God rode the clouds like a chariot coming to my rescue. Amen. But you've got to work that in. This is what we should get out of Isaiah 36 and 37. And maybe we'll just read it and go to lunch in a few minutes. Reason with God. You know, most people don't know how to reason with God and they spend too much time trying to inform God of details of their prayer request. It's so tiring. It exhausts me. It exhausts me. You bring up a prayer request and you start, you mention this angle on it and then this angle and then this angle and there's this side of it, Lord, that you forgot about and there's this angle that you need to consider Just say it like Paul would. Lord, take care of the church at Corinth. Why did he have to go through the church directory? He didn't. Why did he have to mention all the sick ones? He didn't. Why didn't he didn't? You want to see how they prayed? It's in Acts chapter 4. The apostles came back after having been beaten and they had a very short prayer that takes about 23 seconds to pray. And they prayed and said, Lord, thou hast made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. Thou hast created all things, and these people are reproaching thee and hurting us. Does that bother you? We know that the scripture said in Psalm 2 that the kings of the earth take counsel against your people. What are you going to do about it? And the place shook. The place shook. And they were all filled with the Spirit. That's that's Acts chapter 4. And, And Hezekiah knew this. And Hezekiah knew how to get the Lord's attention. Hezekiah is one of the reasoners with God in the Bible. Nehemiah is one of them. And number one reasoner in the Bible is Moses. Moses knew how to reason with the Lord. And he would reason all kinds of different ways. When God would say, stand back, Moses, so I can kill Israel and start a new nation from you, he would say, Lord, if you do that, the Egyptians are going to hear that you weren't a big enough God to get your church into Canaan. Oh, then I won't do it. That, I mean that reverently. I mean that reverently. That's how it went down. Another time. Stand back, Moses. I'm through with them. I'm going to burn them up and I'll start over with you. Wait a minute, Lord. Once upon a time, I asked you if I could see your glory. When I asked to see your glory, you declared to me that you were a God full of mercy and that forgave. Was that true or not? (laughs) You're right. Okay, I won't kill them right now. I'll take 40 years to drop them in the wilderness. But Moses did that all the time. Right, It's very... I've presented it to you in a slightly entertaining way, but I am not laughing about it. It is powerful reasoning Amen. with God. That's a good father with a son that is able to come to Him. Did you mention boldly this morning about prayer? Is that pretty bold? We can go to the Lord and say, wait a minute, you said this, and now you're going to do this? That doesn't match up. You're right. I won't do it. It's powerful. Amen. <laughs> Hezekiah says, they're reproaching you. Do you want to read it for yourself? Look at this. Look at what they said about you. Oh, Don't you get excited just reading that? That that Hezekiah put a letter like that in front of the Lord? Man freely sins like Sennacherib, but his will is simply God's tool to accomplish God's own will. Because Isaiah 10 taught us that. The worst thing that can happen to a child of God is God's chastening from God's God's standpoint and from God's position, which is a proof of love, and it ends. Mm -hmm. God can save from overwhelming forces and circumstances, for in such he gets greater glory. Do your reasonable best to protect yourself, but trust God for the rest. God pities weak faith, if mostly strong, no problem. He understands. He remembers our frame, that we are weak and and that we are dust. Pray Pray as if all depends upon God, no matter what you have done or will do. God can save you in ways you cannot even imagine, without you lifting a finger. Your perspective of the future is so incredibly limited, you can only see a couple possibilities of how things could turn out, and the Lord sees an infinite variety. He sees the end from the beginning, and He works His perfect will for us. God laughs last, and God laughs best at his enemies and our enemies. God loves his church and his people, so haters play with fire. God is jealous, so flirting with the world is spiritual adultery. Do not play games with God's church. Let me remind you of Achan, Ananias, the church at Corinth, and others. God will bring great trials to purge our sins and build our faith. There's power in fervent, righteous, effectual praying, and so forth. Let's go to Isaiah 36 and quickly go through it. The first section is verse 1, Sennacherib's campaign, his military expedition into Judah. Verse 1, now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. Fourteenth year. How old was Hezekiah when he became king? He was 25. He's now 39. He had a terrible 39th year. He had Sennacherib came up and, come up and wipe out all of Judah, except the city of Jerusalem. And there was only a remnant inside the city walls with him. And then he gets a terminal disease in the 39th year of his life. And he had 15 years. The, the terminal disease is going to be chapter 38. Chapter 38 which we'll get to next Sunday. So these two events are in the 39th year of his life. And the Lord adds 15 years to his life, which means he only lived to be 54, and he's one of the four best kings of Judah. Right. He had a great life. He was thankful for the 15 years. In the fourth year of Hezekiah, Shalmaneser had come and taken the 10 tribes captive. He besieged Samaria, the capital of the ten tribes, for two and a half to three years, and the sixth year of Hezekiah, hauled them off and deported them and scattered them throughout Assyria. But now we have the 14th year. Hezekiah is 39. As soon as he took office, the first week, he was bold about starting a revival in Jerusalem. He called for the bolt cutters, and he went down to the temple, which had been chained up by his father, the wicked Ahaz, it's terrible what we read about families in the Bible and the generational weaknesses from one generation to the next. Hezekiah is one of the greatest kings of the, Bible, of the Bible, one of the greatest kings in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the top four kings. He was the king that trusted God the most. That is what the Bible says about him in 2 Kings 18 and verse 5, that he trusted God more than any king before him and more than any king after him because he was in dire straits from a physical health standpoint, and a marauding army outside his city walls. So he's honored for that. But his father was wicked. Ahaz was a terrible king. Ahaz was a terrible man. And Hezekiah's son that began to reign after Hezekiah died was Manasseh, who was the worst king in the history of Judah. Lord God have mercy have mercy. So in this, 30, in this 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, in his 39th year of life, Sennacherib, the mighty king of Assyria, came up and took all the walled cities. The, in the annals of Sennacherib's expedition into Judah, there are 46 of these cities mentioned that he took by siege and it didn't take much because they were small cities and small walls and he took 201,000 captives and just devastated the land like the 15 prophecies in Isaiah had told us in advance. There have been and there will be times in your life when temptations and trials arrive. They might come right after you have turned the corner and sought God zealously. Jesus Christ, as soon as he was baptized, the Spirit, it tells us in the Bible, immediately drove him into the wilderness right. to be tempted. These difficulties might involve opposition that overwhelm and numb your mind. The adversaries might gain a great advantage. They might take your fence cities. But recall this Bible story. God allows adversity to purge dross out of your life and to get himself a greater name in victory. There is no adversity, enemy, dilemma, or problem that even amounts to a gnat against the God we worship, and He's our Father in heaven. Hezekiah sends some ambassadors out to meet Rabshakeh, the ambassador of Sennacherib, verses 2 through 3. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish, where Sennacherib was besieging that Philistine city, to Jerusalem, unto King Hezekiah, with a great army. Let's say he brought 200,000 into Judah, Rabshake could have brought 100,000 against Jerusalem and still left Sennacherib with 100,000 at Lachish. What we know is that 185,000 were killed and the remainder was called small enough for a child to count. Just, that's what we know. And he stood, Rabshake stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. So these are the ambassadors sent from Hezekiah to Rabshakeh, who is representing King Sennacherib. I want you to note as we move on, I want you to note that Eliakim was over the house, and Shebna was only a scribe. Now we met these two men in chapter 22. In chapter 22, Shebna was over the house, but we read in the last 11 verses of Isaiah 22 that Shebna was going to be demoted and die an inglorious death, and Eliakim would be promoted, and Eliakim would be a nail on which his whole family could hang their future. and the nail of Shebna would be removed altogether. Do you remember all that? Well, it's hinted, you know, every time we read about Eliakim, it wants to tell us what position he's in, and every time we read about Shebna, it wants to tell us again what position he's in. Shebna's been demoted, Eliakim's been promoted. Thank you, Lord, for fulfilling Isaiah 22 already. Much more could be said. It doesn't need to be said. We've been saying it for the last several months, as we've studied through Isaiah. We have already come upon this event 15 times before today. I read to you now, Rabshake seeks to frighten Hezekiah. Rabshake is going to speak to the ambassadors to go back and tell Hezekiah these words personally from the king of Assyria. I read to you verses 4 through 10. And Rabshake said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust, that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt? Whereon, if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it, so is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. But if thou say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he, whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar? Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. How wilt thou then turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Here's Shaki's bag of tricks. Bags of propaganda in which he's trying to intimidate Hezekiah into giving up the city. Right. Opening the gates, begging for peace. And he's going to offer terms later. But this is what we have in these seven verses. Tell Hezekiah, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Egypt? Egypt can't help you. If you think Egypt is a staff, and men back then had a staff to protect them in various ways, it's like a weed. It's like a reed, which is a water weed that'll just pierce your hand if you try to rest your nation or city upon it. Egypt is nothing. And remember, they did trust Some of the Jews were trusting in Egypt. Do you remember Isaiah 30 and Isaiah 31, where we were told specifically that they were looking to Egypt to help them against Assyria? And so Assyria's recon, Assyria's spies knew about that. So he brings it up and confronts Hezekiah with it. You trusting Egypt? You know, God had already taken care of it through Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah 20? Isaiah 20 was... Isaiah, take your clothes off. Take your clothes off in Jerusalem for three and a half years to give an object lesson to the Jews Mm -hmm. that this is what the Egyptians and the Ethiopians are going to look like when Assyria gets done with them. They're all going to be captives. Mm -hmm. So there was the Lord comforting Hezekiah. Egypt's not the answer because Egypt's going to lose to Assyria as well. Then in verse 5, Shaki is mocking Hezekiah's words. I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. This is the way you're talking and acting. I have counsel and strength for war. That's the way you're acting, and I'm mocking. That's ridiculous. You don't have counsel or strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust? See, the question is in verse 4, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And in verse 5, now on whom dost thou trust? that thou rebellest against me. You're preparing shields and darts in abundance, my spies have told me. You have altered the water course to try to deprive my army of water and supply your city of water. I know about that. You're rebelling. You're planning to take on my siege. Who are you trusting? We want to live in such a way that everyone knows who we're trusting. When Jesus was on the cross, did they know who he was trusting? Was it Egypt? No. Was it shields and darts in abundance? No. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. God did deliver him. That was an answered prayer. And it wasn't much of a prayer because those were his enemies. Let's, let's live our lives in such a way that everyone knows we trust God for bodily health, for finances for family, for politics, for nation, for safety, for all of it. We trust Him. Let's just let it be known and let it show that we trust the Lord. 6, verse 6, Lo, thou trustest in Egypt, forget it. If you try to trust Him, He'll just pierce your hand. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is no help to those that trust Him. And we've been over this for, for hours, brethren. I'm not going to elaborate on it. Verse 7 But if thou say to me, We trust in the Lord our God. Well, if you trust in Jehovah, notice the capitals. If you trust in Jehovah, the other nations knew that the God of the Jews was Jehovah. If you say that you're trusting in Jehovah, Jehovah is angry with you right now because you have diminished his worship because Hezekiah has had you tear down all the groves and all the high places throughout Judah, and there's only one altar left. And you know, like I know, that God's gotta have a whole lot of altars to answer your prayers. You've diminished his religion by it all collapsing back to the one altar in the city of Jerusalem. Well, guess where God wanted his worship to come from? The one city of Jerusalem. And so that is Sennacherib's and Rabshakeh's observation of Hezekiah's revival has diminished religion. You know, people may look at the way we worship and say, well, why don't they do this and why don't they do that? Why don't you look at the Bible and ask us a Bible question? Right. We want to do it God's way. We don't need a pipe organ to get in the mood for Jesus Christ. We need Colossians 2.10a to get in the mood for Jesus Christ. And so they look at us and they can't understand, well, how's God going to accept your worship? Because it's biblical. And how was God going to accept Hezekiah's worship? Because it was biblical. God picked that city for His altar and for His temple and for His priests. Mm -hmm. And so that's what verse 7 is referring to. Rabshake is saying, wait a minute. You've taken down the high places and the altars where Jehovah was worshipped. And you've only got one altar left. Oh, all you need is one altar. Amen. Every one of you, you only need one altar. And that's to get on your knees and go to the throne of grace right. to obtain mercy, to help in time of need. Amen. So there was, there was one of his... Propaganda tools in verse 7. We come to another one in verse 8. This is mockery. Listen, go back to Hezekiah and tell him that if you'll put up some pledges in case the horses are lost, give us a security deposit on 2,000 horses, we'll give you 2,000 horses. Well, you won't have the men to put on them, will you? Now, this, this is a subtle blow. How many horses did... A godly king in Israel have zero. Deuteronomy 17, 17 and 18, God didn't allow them to have horses. Right. Solomon went against. That was one of Solomon's sins, was to multiply horses. They weren't allowed to have horses. When they would take a chariot, when they would take a chariot army down, they'd hew the horses in pieces and destroy the chariots, until a bad king came along that wanted chariots, and so. Here is Rabshaki making fun of their abilities to defend themselves by saying, listen, if you'll give us a security deposit, we'll loan you the horses Well, you won't be able to find 2,000 men to put on them and then we'll have a little battle out here. See, we'll we'll provide the means since you don't have it. And since you don't have 2,000 men and you don't have the horses to put them on, then you're less than the least of my master's servants, his captains, the least of them has greater and has more men and horses commissioned to him than you've got in the whole city of Jerusalem he's making a mockery and if you listened last night to the video for those of you that did i went through the ways the different ways the tools the propaganda the seduction of a young man trying to take a virgin and this is it right here if if you will convert these over they're beautiful he appeals, he threatens, he mocks, he forces. But God's gonna answer soon. And it will be in the second service. And it's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, as, as I hope you know. So that's what verse eight is about. And verse nine is about that. This is one of his propaganda methods is mockery that you have no ability to defend yourself. I've got extra horses. I'll put up to 2,000 horses. Do you have 2,000 men that even know how to get their feet in stirrups and fight war from the back of a horse? That's cavalry. How will you turn away the least of my captains? How will you put your trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? I have so many, I can crush Egypt which they did verse 10 here's another one another tool am i now come up without the lord against this land to destroy it the lord said unto me go up against this land and destroy it girl meets boy girl says i love the lord boy says i love the lord too this is it right here are you all listening there's lessons to learn and so Sennacherib with Rabshaki he says, listen, I know if you're trusting in the Lord, it's not Egypt, it's not horses. If you're trusting in the Lord, remember the Lord sent me. I'm here to do his will. He told me to come into here and destroy your city and destroy Judah. It was a lie. There's numerous reasons why it was a lie. It was just one of his propaganda methods. And so it brings us to the next section. Rabshakeh now moves from trying to intimidate Hezekiah directly to intimidating and frightening the Jewish men, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the remnant that are left inside the city walls. And it's verses 11 through 20. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And speak not to us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Was that wise or foolish? Do you, do you need help with that verse? That was really foolish. To tell an enemy what your weakness is. And what was the weakness? The morale of the inhabitants of the city. And so does Rabshakey say, you're right. Since it's just a little, a little Paris peace talks here between you and me, I'll speak in Syrian. Are you kidding? Watch what happens. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Am I just coming here with a message for Hezekiah and you three? Wrong. Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? I'm not coming with some private lesson. I'm coming with a public warning to everyone in the city of Jerusalem that after I've besieged this place for a few weeks, you'll be eating your own dung and drinking your own piss. Those are extreme conditions. We live comfortably today, don't we? Yeah, yeah. We do not even know the concept of a siege. Right. Not only did they eat dung, drink piss, eat doves dung, I'm referring to the siege of Samaria, right. and eat asses heads, they ate their children. We have no idea about hunger. We have no idea about a siege. We have no idea about starvation. He got the attention of the men on the wall with that one. Then Rabshakee stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language Oh, there's a morale problem in the city. Oh, I'm going to shout it out now in Hebrew and said, hear ye the words of the great king, not the little mouse-like king you have named Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Folks on the walls, population of Jerusalem, do not let your king deceive you, he can't save you. I represent the great king of Assyria. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. See, verse 14 is Hezekiah's defensive measures of water supply being rerouted and an abundance of shields and darts verse, and, and repairing the wall. Those are the four things we're told about. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Rabshakeh is quoting hezekiah and mocking him hearken not to hezekiah for thus saith the king of assyria look at this seduction make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me and eat ye every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern until i come and take you away to a land like your own land a land of corn and wine a land of bread and vineyards. I love you. I want to treat you right. This, he sounds like one of the kindest gentlemen in the whole Bible, right here. I hope you're all listening. There are so many ancillary lessons that we can get from this kind of language, right. this kind of seduction, this kind of propaganda in order to seduce the virgin daughter of Zion. Well, this sounds fair enough. Would you rather take this than die? Yeah, yes, I would. Listen, if he's if he's going to let me go home, I can leave Jerusalem and go to my farm. Get my farm straightened out, eat from my own fig tree, eat from my own vine, drink water out of my Oh, I love the water out of our well. Don't wife, isn't it the best water? The water out of our well? And then I'll come in a couple of years and take you I'll take you to Assyria and give you a land just like your own. Does that sound better than dying by starvation? It does. What's the problem? Thou shalt not commit fornication with the world. I gave you the city of Jerusalem because that is my place on all the earth. Mount Zion and my temple there is the place where I want to be worshipped. And I have given it to you for you to keep it and to defend it and to keep my worship going there. So they didn't have a real choice. But it sure would be tempting to think, oh, wow, just open the gates and he's going to let us go home. And he'll come back in a year or two when he's done with this particular military campaign and lead us to Assyria to a land just like our own. That's a whole lot better than dying. But they had a commitment to that land that God had given them. And so, they didn't do that, and Hezekiah didn't let them do that. Verse 18, he keeps moving on, just throwing out these different appeals, these different ways of reasoning, intimidating, overwhelming, mocking, and trying to frighten the Jews. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? You know all the nations and all the cities and all the kings that we've destroyed? They've all had their gods, they've prayed, they've offered the most expensive sacrifices that they could put together, and it didn't deliver a single one of them. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Your cousins, ten tribes, much larger than you, could not resist my fathers and me. Shalmaneser and Sargon, my father, took them all and no one was able to resist, and there was no religion that could oppose me." And he, he appeals to their cousins. But what were their cousins worshiping? What was the problem in Israel? What they worship? Two, two golden calves, right. one in Dan, one in Bethel. That wasn't Jehovah. Remember, Jeroboam the first had to establish a false religion to keep the Israelites from wanting to go to Jerusalem. Because then he would lose the ten tribes back to the, to the real priests in Jerusalem. So he invented calf worship. Right. So here's Rabshake. He's just thinking like everyone else does. No, one, no other religion's been able to work. Who are they among all the gods of these lands, verse 20, that had delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Since no God has been able to resist my fathers and me, since no God has been able to resist this Assyrian army, since we've taken them all, every single one of their religions, every single one of their deities, including Samaria, what do you think the Lord Jehovah of Judah is gonna be able to do resisting me? Just remember, when there's blasphemers that you read about and there's more and more of them, if you take a peek at the news, you read more and more blasphemers, blaspheming the Creator God of the Bible. He hears. That's all that is necessary. If you get the urge, drop down to your knees and say, Lord, do unto them as you did unto Sennacherib. (laughs) If if you get the urge, do that. It's a healthy exercise for a righteous soul. Rabshakey saw this one altar. He's going to point out in the next chapter the images in Jerusalem were just pitiful compared to the images of other gods. Do you know why Psalm 115 says, the heathens say, where is now their God? Because they looked in Jerusalem, they'd come, they'd come for business, and they'd look around in Jerusalem, where's their God? They don't even have one. Do you know what the answer is in the Psalm 115? But our God is in the heavens. Amen. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Amen. I want you to appreciate that because in the next chapter, the spies from Assyria are going to say, you don't even have images comparable to the images of the gods we've destroyed. We don't need an image, brethren. You know, people, if you're a Roman Catholic and you were to come into our church you call this a church where's your stained glass where's your paintings where's your statues we don't have anything except Bible worship and that means God's on our side like God was on the side of the Jews in Jerusalem they held their peace the three representatives of Hezekiah held their peace and answered him not a word for the King's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, the one promoted because he was a godly man and his whole family could depend on him for their sustenance and future. A great family tree that was over the household and Shebna the scribe, the one that was demoted and was gonna be destroyed and die an ignominious death. And Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh." And so everything that we just read, they came inside the city, told Hezekiah, and chapter 37 will be Hezekiah's response and God's response, and it's beautiful. There are so many lessons that we can learn. I hope your trust is in Him. I hope that because the Bible wants us to know Hezekiah trusted God more than anyone else, that God ranks men, God ranks men by how much they trust God. Let's push for the top spot. Let's push for the top. Not for our praise. We don't want to be found in a Bible verse. We just want God to delight in us knowing that we trust Him in everything of time and eternity. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.